Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this very special edition of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about uh, architecture um, in Chicago and other things. Um, and today is a very, I'm positively giddy because we have a very, very, very special episode. Uh, it's, it's the Bridge House special. Uh, Jamie, uh, for the listeners, where are we right now? Well, right now we're sitting in a Beaux-Arts building on the corner of Michigan, North Michigan, right? And uh, yeah. Wacker Drive. So I can see the Tribune building, a place where I once worked. Uh, there's cars <laughs> going by. There's people panhandling. Hopefully yeah. someone's not swearing outside. <laughs> but we are sitting in a former Bridge House. And this, uh, as you can probably tell from the echo in the room, this was used... Uh, while the Chicago River was a major trading port. Obviously, yeah. barges went up and down here, and these bridges went up and down to uh, let ships go by. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, uh, most of these bridge houses are idle because uh, we don't have large masts and other stuff uh, going right. down a river. Yeah, so the, the theme of today is, is the Chicago River and its associated infrastructure. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I took the train up here, and it's one of these, like, lovely sort of, like, moody late summer, early fall days in Chicago. There's a little bit of cloud cover, so your eyes don't strain uh, when you look up. So all of the buildings have a, an extra sort of presence. Yep. Um, it, it, it was like one of these mornings, maybe because we're like sort of in this space really reflecting on the river, uh, where I felt like extra in touch with the city of Chicago. Yes, and it is a reflective room for yes. those people <laughs> criticizing my audio engineering. It, it is a hot room. But it's because this is, what, what is this, maybe 10 by 15? 10 by 15, 10 by 15 yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's really a, uh, an amazing kind of panoramic view. Uh, we can see uh, the Marina Marina Towers down the street. With a, They kind of have this uh, like Christo-esque uh, <laughs> fabric uh, covering right now uh, for some maintenance work. Um, but yeah, really, really we, we are looking straight down Michigan Avenue to the left and, and to the right. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a spectacular mm. place to do some radio. Yeah, and straight ahead, I see the name of a guy who's being impeached. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah uh, right. That, that's an interesting, that's, yeah. interesting thing for gotta, You know, you got to take the, the, the battle with the good, Jamie. The rough with the switch, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the reason for this season is the uh, Tender House Project. And we're joined in our ERSAT uh, studio by Mijay Gula. Uh, Mijay, how's it going? Going real well, Kiefer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm so happy you're here and sort of, you know, when, when you in, in said, I've got this thing cooking, do you want to do a radio show yeah. in a bridge house? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> of course I want to do that. Uh, much, to, much to Jamie's chagrin here because, uh, you know. Yes, this equipment is very heavy <laughs> to get up all <laughs> and, and as we'll talk about, in, uh, there, there's no elevators in the bridge house. Um, so we, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a, in a little bit, but give, give us the highlights. Why are we here? Well, I'm really excited that you accepted the invitation and Jamie for hauling all the equipment up five, five stories. Um, we're here because Tender House Project is trying to find cultural and civic uses for Chicago's bridge houses. Today, majority of the bridge houses are used only 5% of the year, and because of that, they are left dormant, inactive, sometimes deteriorating. Um, and so on a preservation end, on a need to secure sites for civic agency, community, ex uh, community and cultural exchange on the Chicago River, Tender House Project is really, is really present. It's ripe for the moment. So yeah. um, right now, Tender House Project has an exhibition in the McCormick Bridge House and Chicago River Museum for the next 
It's been going on since September 12th, and we'll be running through till November 3rd. Um, and we, uh, this is a demonstration of what what could a bridge house be, right? Yeah. It could be a radio studio where we bring communities on both sides of the river to come and share their their stories. Yeah. Um, so I'm so excited that you're able to come and demonstrate uh, this exciting thing. You can hear the cars. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the cars honking outside, but it's really magical right now in this yeah. room. Yeah, it is a it is a really special feeling, and and I, you know I think. There's something about the way these bridge houses are sort of right in the thick of it, and 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 but but also kind of apart. That as an architect, I find uh, totally sort of fascinating. But you really do feel feel the kind of magic. Mijay, what are the bridge houses? You said they're used only five percent of the time. What just for listeners who don't know, what are they used for during that five percent of the time? Well, um, Patrick McMurray, who's one of ours, will be able to. Uh, uh, fill in on that a little bit a lot better than I could but my understanding is that Chicago uh, only lifts their bridges a couple dozen times in the year uh, in this in the spring boating season when the boats need to go out into the Lake Michigan and then uh, reverses uh, in the fall when all the sailboats need to come in so mostly the uh, bridges only lift for recreational use yeah and and so and then they're, they're all throughout the city, but most of them are concentrated here in the loop. Is that right? Um, we have 35 bridges uh, along the three branches of the Chicago River, and the only uh, the two the only branches that lift bridges are on the south branch and the main branch, which means that the 15 bridge houses along the north branch are completely vacant. The bridges are locked. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those buildings, starting from Kinsey all the way to North Ashland, are significantly deteriorating. Um, And so, yep, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Well, let's, um, let's, since we've got Patrick McBriarty here in the studio and also Ward Miller uh, from Preservation Chicago. So um, let's, let's get those guys here uh, and, and let's, let's get into some of that history. So uh, we're here, and, and uh, Patrick, welcome. Sure, I'm Pat McBrady. I'm here, I guess, because of that book that I did, Chicago River Bridges, in yeah. 2013. Yeah, and, and, and Ward Miller? Thank you. Well, yeah. Proud to be here. Yeah, so let's, let's talk river history and, and bridge house history specifically. Um, because as, as I kind of noticed, I, I, I could imagine this being... Uh, the, the life of the bridge tender when when before they were locked when they went up and down uh, it's I, it seems like the sort of thing that could be relaxing I could imagine gazing out these windows and watching the boats go by um, but I imagine that's more my romance uh, <laughs> than anything else certainly yeah and certainly it's not a job for the faint of heart I mean just walking up those stairs all the time uh, yeah it's yeah. not I mean what, you know I, I said to myself when I turned 50 what I really want to do is carry 150 pounds of gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, not, life goal. Not not a job for a heavy smoker. Uh, <laughs> no, certainly. No. <laughs> Although I'm sure probably some of the bridge tenders in <laughs> years past there. were. Um, but yeah, the the bridge tenders themselves would have almost kind of lived in these bridge houses. Now we're in uh, the southwest corner of the Michigan Avenue Bridge, and this bridge house was not used per se by a bridge tender okay. or or bridge operator as they call themselves now. Opposite us, though, on the east of us, that bridge house and then the one to the north of us are the two that operated each half of the bridge and still have those controls in there today. And those are the ones that the operators will use today to open and close the bridges for this dance of these river trips where the boats come up and down the river. And, and I think it's a cool location because 
I like to call it, these bridges are kind of stuck in this skyscraper canyon. Yeah. So, so often the bridge houses themselves are quite unique and interesting, and each, the architecture of each bridge house will tell you about the era of when the bridge itself was built. Right. Um, but they're often dwarfed by the fabulous ar architecture around Chicago and have been underappreciated. So I'm, I love the fact that Ward's here and that uh, yeah. Mijay has taken on this tender house project to maybe activate some of these bridge houses that are barely used or not really used at all yeah. other than say we have that we're in this you know friends of the river right mccormick bridge house museum that started in 20 2004 right so you know listeners might be aware that these chicago bridges are sort of famous right i mean they're they're in popular parlance draw bridges right but, sure. but not exactly right they're double bascule is that the technical term <laughs> right and and in architectural and engineering uh circles we are known for our chicago type bascule bridges yeah. which is a particular design that city engineers developed around the turn of the last century in the early 1900s and so Cortland avenue is the very first example of that chicago type bascule bridge and those yeah. have evolved over the years and uh, Michigan Avenue, when it was built, I think was like the widest and maybe largest bascule bridge in the world in 1920, uh -huh, which we're wow. coming up on its 100th anniversary Amazing. on May 20th of next year of so 2020. this bridge we're sitting on right now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's, 100, it's not going to collapse on it. And no <laughs> <laughs> infrastructure is in trouble. Uh, I don't know. We I, should ask the preservation. Let's, let's not go there. Well, right. no, you can because actually uh, two years ago I was on Chicago Tonight talking with Phil Ponce and I knew he was going to ask that question. So I talked with uh, Dan Burke, who's at the Bridge House, or excuse me, at the Chicago Department of Transportation, and I asked him the same question. And you know, the city, and, and particularly the Department of Transportation, loves the bridges. Um, they're part of our industrial heritage, and so they are main, making sure the bridges are maintained. Uh, they get, uh, by federal law, have to have a full engineering inspection every two years. And they've been, on the last 10 years, on a uh, process of repainting at least four bridges each year. And when they do that, they'll do also some minor structural and repairs, if, if those are obvious at the time, and, and do yeah. those. But but that's why, say, Grand Avenue was taken out, right. was it had some structural issues and it was going to need to be replaced. And so now we have this interim bridge there. And then the hopes will be there will be a, a nicer, uh, probably fixed bridge, not as interesting to, right. to me who loves playing with Tonka toys like these bridges. <laughs> and Chicago Avenue, too. That's another one that we just lost. And, you know, uh, right. uh, we're at one of the great intersections of the world, as far as I'm concerned. You know, when you come to the Michigan Avenue Bridge and you're at Michigan and Wacker, you see the Wrigley Building, you see the Tribune Tower, 333, buildings of Mies van der Rohe, and the London House, which we were uh, yeah. very instrumental in saving and repurposing and getting landmark a number of years ago. Uh, you're at one of those great corners of the world, and it's a beautiful outdoor room that just uh, always gives me a head rush as I <laughs> uh, walk over the bridge. And, and, you know, it's also interesting, we're at this very point where Fort Dearborn uh, was constructed just outside the doors here. Right. And, you know, this is sort of the beginnings of Chicago as the river, you know, once sort of uh, came as we know it and then sort of turned down Michigan Avenue and created this huge delta, you know, yeah. down at, which emptied out into Lake Michigan at the Art Institute, which is so mind-boggling to think of, you know, these large uh, 
municipal projects that happened, yeah. you know, in the early days of Chicago. Right, before um, this, like, half-mile landfill right. that extended <laughs> exactly. the lakefront east. You know, right. this used to be a peninsula, almost, if you will, yes. and it was a great strategic fort site. And you still get some of that... Uh, that, that rush of, of, of energy when you come to this point. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really remarkable. And of course, for years, that was railroad yards east yep. of us, right. Illinois Central tracks, but uh, really an amazing and dynamic intersection and, sure. and a beautiful bridge. And I think we should be celebrating this bridge next year uh, maybe in the same way we celebrated the water tower a few weeks ago on its 150th anniversary. Yeah. Well, and let's let's talk about that industrial heritage a little bit because you know if I could ask just like a, a very naive question, sort of. So we have these drawbridges, <laughs> and, and, and but, probably and, and the most in the world except for Amsterdam. Yeah, which is incredible. And and so, but you know the 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 this kind of naive question that uh, you know I, this is this is excellent radio hosting right here. Why why didn't <laughs> they just make the bridges taller? I'm sure some listeners will be wondering why we have these things. I well, mean... Well, sure. And, and I'll often talk about that in some tours or things like that. Sure. The, the, it's really because of the flat prairie landscape and this Y-shaped river, which of course the Y is a municipal symbol mm -hmm. for Chicago representing the Chicago River, was it made no sense to do a tall fixed bridge because of the price of real estate and this flat landscape. So if you can imagine taking, say, the Skyway toll bridge over the Calumet and putting that in downtown Chicago to give the ships that were coming through Chicago when it was developing right. that 120, 130 foot right. clearance would be just unconscionable. Right. And so, and they did try tunnels, but those were kind of dark and dank and people didn't want to go down there. Um, so it ended up that swing bridges initially were one of the major bridges from about the 1840s up through the turn of the century. And then those were had to be replaced and take that center pier in the middle of the river that they would yeah. pivot on out of the waterway for the larger steel ships coming in and out of Chicago. So sure. that's when kind of the Bascule Bridge came along and the city did a few experiments and right. then got so frustrated. One of the chief engineers said, we got to come up with our own bridge and designed it. Right. Um, with help of other other right. folks on his staff, and so the two leaves are kind of counterweighted, so that the the right. motor force is is kind of minor uh, when they're lifting the bridge. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've kicked around this word bascule, which is yeah. a French word, um, which means seesaw or teeter totter, and it goes back to probably medieval drawbridges, maybe even before, where you know these wooden bridges over the moats were so heavy they found if they used a counterweight, uh, it was a lot easier to open and close sure. them. Sure. And so that it usually has an implication of use, the use of a counterweight to open vertically um, to open and close the river. And it might be a single or double leaf bridge, depending on which location on Chicago River you're I at. I see. And, and, and sort of this was a working waterway. Absolutely. And, and so, I'm, so the ships would come in from the lake. They'd be bringing uh, either, you know, I've, I've read William Cronin's Nature Metropolis. So I have some idea of what they had on board. Sure, grain Timber, and lumber. Gra and, grain, right. all these things. We still have a lot of sand and gravel barges that, that go to the... Um, uh, the pl the uh, concrete plants that uh -huh. are along the river, uh, and those those barges though are now low enough to get underneath the bridges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at, the, at its height in about 1887, we had 21,000 ships coming and going in and out of the Chicago River. Yeah. And and if you can imagine, each year? that's each year, right? That was each yeah. year. Okay. Wow. That was the height of it, uh, and then the Calumet started to pick up more after the fire of 1871. Um, and some of the industry started to move down there for larger lands as they scaled up. But still, you had these swing bridges at the time that were opening maybe as often as three or four yeah. times an hour. 
Uh, so you would get what they called bridged and, and had, an ex- had an excuse to be late for a meeting or, yeah. or an appointment because you couldn't get across the river. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, uh, and, and, and in 1920, when this bridge here at Michigan Avenue was built, this would have been the first bridge to greet and, uh, and say, uh, you know, aloha to the ships leaving yeah. the Chicago River coming in and out. Right. And so it opened probably... Uh, over 2,000 times that first full year of operation. Right. And uh, so, and it, and it carried about 50% of all traffic yeah. back and forth because we didn't have Lakeshore Drive until 1937. Yeah. Uh, and then Columbus Drive in 1982. Well, it's the kind of thing that strikes me as maybe a, a preservation concern of 100 years ago, right? I mean, Absolutely. there's this kind of interesting thing where uh, we have, I mean, the commercial hub of the city and it's kind of over it was at a time overlapped with this kind of amazing industry and that's that's uh, you know i guess you still see that in some parts of the world but but nowadays the kind of financial underpinnings of of society are kind of separate from these these amazing like acts of transportation and making that that are kind of fundamental to it all and so i would imagine that 100 years ago in chicago having those two things overlapped would give you a kind of totally different consciousness of the way that the world worked in an interesting way. But I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious, I, physically, what kind of, where, where were they going? I mean, you, we know some of them, some of the boats were going to, uh, by Calumet Lake, some of those larger tracts of industrial land. But what, what was the kind of industry like around this area? And, question one. And question two, um, when that was being taken away, was there a kind of effort for, of preservation? I'm just curious. Well, uh, you know, I think you have to remember that in 1909, there was a plan of Chicago developed by uh, Daniel Burnham and, and Bennett. And, you know, it, it sought to, to turn this industrial city, if you will, into more of a commercial world-class city, as we would call it today. Right. And the Michigan Avenue Bridge, for instance, uh, was sort of that uh, first signal that something was happening, mm. if you will, as Pine Street to the north of us, which Michigan Avenue was called, uh, was linked to Michigan Avenue as we knew it south of the river. And so, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is really the, sort of the beginning of that boulevard phase that, that Chicago morphed into mm. um, as, as, as more and more goods went to the port of Chicago, which sure. was, you know, more on the Calumet uh, rather than the Chicago River. But remember that uh, also part of the same phase was, uh, and it's a double-decker bridge here, it's a double-decker or, or greater uh, streetscape here where we have Lower Wacker, Lower Michigan Avenue yeah. uh, intersecting here. And, and this was all part of the grand vision of 1909, if you will, whereas before that time, this was a South Water Market. This was a vegetable and produce market that sort of lined what we would consider to be Wacker Drive today. Right. The lumber um, yards were just west the near, the, yards near West Point in yes. that area on wow, the South very Branch. Close. Yeah. And the yeah. railroads were down there and all the railroad passenger stations and railroad tracks were all around us, sort of hidden, uh, you know, concealed below ground right. or or in these large pits, you know, that were to the east of us that were covered mm-hmm. in the 1970s and then to the west of us, you know, the Merchandise Mart. And, and there were tanneries and, and, and uh, various different uh, industrial sites like uh, some foundries and things like that. Finkel Steel was probably one of the last remnants on the North Branch that got removed. Yeah. But there were steel mills and other things right down on the Chicago River closer to downtown at that time and the South Branch is still 
has that very industrial feel. Yeah. We'll see what happened what, when the related folks kind of do their thing there sure. between, you know, Roosevelt Road and 18th Street. Yeah. Which is an old train yard. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, speaking of, of getting getting bridged, uh, I just, I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm going to go on a tangent because I can't get this image out of my my mind when I, when I bike south. Yeah. Uh, on my road bike, there there is a working bridge uh, way down uh, by by 95th Street by Calumet Fisheries. Sure. Um, uh, and I, I always get bridged on my bike there. But these boats are really in, the the working river boats that are still around are kind of incredible because they're about 50 feet wide, so they can navigate the rivers. But because they're also you know made to transport huge quantities of goods across the the great lakes and and make it through the canals and all this they're like 50 feet wide and like six seven hundred feet long sure and they're they're just it's an incredible sight to behold um and i and i'm and i'm what what were the kind of boats like then uh when when this was a working working waterway and did they literally just kind of sidle up to the edge of the river and uh dump dump the stuff right off the side there i mean LaSalle street didn't have a bridge uh, for a long time, and uh-huh. there was wharfs there, and that's where they did a lot of loading and unloading. There was some stock, uh, uh, what do I want to, uh, stevedores and that, that had a running craps game there in between <laughs> loading and unloading ships, waiting for job uh, for jobs to come up. Yeah. Um, so there was tugboats that would were uh, belching smoke and steam up into the air. And yeah. schooners. Uh, schooners. That, that which is really hard to think of. Schooners on right. the Chicago River, 100, right? 120 foot, 125 foot right. masts coming in, yeah. uh, in and out of Chicago. Uh, and then as the steel ships started to come, become uh, more available with commercial steel, uh, those started to replace those uh, lumber ships and, yeah. and the, the wooden uh, ships that, and there was shipbuilding here in Chicago. We were a couple of shipyards that were on the Chicago River that did a lot of construction of uh, s- schooners and and other Great Lakes ships around uh, the, the area. Yeah. Would they so, have international ships come in here, or was this basically just North American Canadian transport? Uh, I think it was more uh, North American, and uh, you know, sort of Bridgeport would be transfer point to then the canal. Um, and home sweet home. Uh, but then in in the Santorin <laughs> Santorin Ship Canal, um, you know, opened up in uh, I think it was 1911 or 1915. 1900, I think. 1900 opened, yeah. but I'm thinking for um, oh, for, for ship, ocean going ships. Yeah. Um, I think they got right. Uh, right. approval for that about 1910, 1911, uh, and so you could take ocean going ships from the East Coast all the way down to through to the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Uh, and so that's you know. The, the Calumet River, those bridges still open on demand uh, because there is commercial traffic, there's recreational traffic, uh, there's boat yards there, there's industry there. Yeah. Um, so uh, unlike the Chicago River, which used to be on demand as well for the bridge to open until 1995 right. when they sort of came up to this, this agreement. But I remember the Medusa Challenger coming down the Chicago River, and it, and you know it being like a giant football field trying to navigate the it's a river. Huge gravel barge, a couple of blocks long, exactly, and, and nearly as wide as the river. Exactly, and you'd see it make these hairpin turns. You know, it's a very wide river at this point. Yeah. But uh, these ships were so long, and it almost seemed like it stretched from one bridge to another, uh, which was really phenomenal. And then uh, it was up until the '80s that that would come in about every couple of weeks, right. bringing gravel or sand to the prairie material right there on yeah. the, uh, what is it, I want to say 
um, Ohio like Street, Chicago, Langdon, yeah. right there, the right, right by Goose Island, plant. which yeah. is amazing. I mean, and that's what I, I kind of am, am always awed by. You know, this overlap of industry and commerce is that plant is still there producing concrete uh, yeah. for a lot of the buildings yes. that were that are that are kind of surrounding us. These huge skyscrapers, which you is incredible. A, you have a limited amount of time to get that mix, that concrete <laughs> mix, to the skyscraper. Right. It's like you know, it's like within a, a certain amount of time before yeah. it starts solidifying or. <laughs> start losing this, the strength of the concrete. So you've, you need those factories nearby, those, yeah. those concrete mixes. But I also remember a time when uh, you really would see the bridges go up pretty regularly. And, and I think, you know, there was a, a great United Airlines commercial. Here's a, here's a yeah. little promo for United <laughs> Airlines, you know, where you see all the bridges opening up on the Chicago River and they're like welcoming arms or, you know. Yeah. And, and that was another uh, wonderful spectacle of Chicago that you don't see too often. But of course, you know, during the fall, the spring and fall seasons, we do see that with some of the sailboats. Right. Right. Wednesday, Wednesday and Saturday mornings is right. when yeah. that happens. But right. it used to be more of a regular thing that sure. you would see um, quite frequently. And then when the Sun-Times and Chicago Daily News, another defunct newspaper, was here right on the river where uh, Trump uh, now a, is. A, an, an unnamed tower stands. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I named it. <laughs> uh, you know, you used, to, you used to be able to see the, uh, the, the, the uh, Sun-Times and the Daily news being printed on the lower levels and they would bring in uh, rolls of paper on ships yeah uh, so you know uh, of course they were uh, go, go and ahead. sometimes by rail which is why you know over by Kinsey Street there's that railroad bridge that I perpetuate the joke it, that's always up that's right. called the Viagra Bridge jokingly, <laughs> but, but, but that spur their last commercial customer in 2001 was the Sun Times where they would sometimes deliver rolls of paper by rail as well, so yeah. they could receive it either way. Yeah. Um, but also, if you're moving really heavy material, you know the water is the way to go. And we still have what was that book that came out? Ninety percent of everything a couple of years ago um, will come and some step of the process of its manufacturer or delivery to the customer by ship. Right. It's just that we have these much larger ships, so it's less frequent. Right. Well, and, and I mean, that's kind of one of the things that was amazing, right, about like the, the stockyards and, and kind of all of this industry. It, it had to be nearby the kind of centers of commerce because that was one of the only ways you could kind of sure. get information about like, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, Chicago Commodities Exchange, right, As it was, was near at hand. And, and now right. all of these systems are kind of mystified and, 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 and hidden from us in a way that... More uh, of a black box. Yeah, it's right. kind of a black yeah. box. And, and I guess that's, that's my, my kind of... It's maybe this is more of a philosophical question about how you approach this history because I think, um, you know, I, obviously I'm, I'm sort of into the, the romance of it, but also, you know, I, it, it's, it's this constant switch that flips back and forth in my brain between the kind of romance of it, like just the, the awe of what humans are capable of and in, in sort of what, what we do as a, as a kind of society in, in marshalling all of these resources to make a kind of beautiful city like this. And, and also, you know, the kind of like uh, the, the exploitation, right? Like the kind of the, like, you know, we can talk about this amazing industrial past, but as you were kind of alluding to, right? Like lots of like, like smoke, pollution, all, all of these other things were, were, were happening at the same time and so you know we I, I, I'm just kind of curious how, how, how you approach that as, as, a, as a historian um, and also when you know thinking about the preservation how does that how does that uh, like 
does that change the way you kind of think about pres does that does that sort of way of thinking um, enter into the the preservationist mindset uh, in some way uh, Patrick let's start let's start with you so I, I you know after getting into this bridge uh, history yeah I'm torn like I drive over by North Avenue and that was replaced in 2004 with a, a, a suspension cable stay bridge sure uh, the first suspension bridge in Chicago it's a fixed bridge it's it's a beautiful design but it's not as interesting as a movable bridge right the idea that it could actually open um, that excitement even as you're <coughs> driving across it right yeah um, and so but how do you preserve that? And in the United States, we have this penchant for wanting the newest, latest, tearing down the old. Uh, and so how do we balance that? Because it's not inexpensive to repurpose or reuse a building. You have to be a little more creative and a little more thoughtful. And in America, I don't know that we are yet. I right. mean, not having lived here, say, like in Europe for maybe 2,000 years in places um, where they recognize the value in repurposing things, but then they're also happy to tear things down and redo as well. I was just back from, from Germany and they're doing a, a, a Bundesgaden in Hilbron where I was visiting and it's an, an old industrial site that is now a big garden show for the next year but then that's slowly getting developed with uh, condominiums, apartments and housing mixed in with uh, a river walk and parks uh, to take an industrial site and then allow for the more intensive demand for housing that they're having there without going out into the countryside. So mm -hmm. you, it takes a little more creativity, a little more uh, planning and coordination, and this contentious atmosphere politically and trying to develop money to preserve things. I, I don't I don't envy at Ward's position. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you address you know we're, that. I mean, we're busy twenty four seven. Let me tell you, the phone never stops ringing, and the need and, and our service area the need never uh, the, nev the need never ceases. And our service area is just within the boundaries of the city of Chicago. So we're not even talking about the metropolitan area of Chicago or Chicago land, mm -hmm. as it's sometimes referred to. We're just really focused on the the city within its borders sure. and. Um, we're always wrestling with the problem, and because we're um, oftentimes testifying before various uh, committees and commissions, uh, we're always thinking of sort of that history and trying to reflect back on it. Right. Um, and it's and it's and it's wrenching at times, but uh, you know there's a lot of hope out there, and uh, I think I think the people of Chicago have gone from. Um, you know, the age in the 1950s and 1960s where we saw demolitions, wholesale demolitions of historic buildings, and that included bridges and other features, um, to this uh, where, you know, architects and scholars um, and architectural historians may have yeah. realized the value of Chicago's building and its use of steel, you mm -hmm. know, to, to build buildings, yeah. you know, skyscrapers. The first skyscraper was built here. Right. And that use of steel uh, allowed for more light and air into buildings and offices in an age before electricity was really popular mm -hmm. and, and HVAC systems, yeah. air conditioning, heating. And, and that ties that back to where we are right now. The exactly. Michigan Avenue Bridge was the precipitous uh, event that then led to the two buildings across the street from us of the Tribune Towers and of first the Wrigley Allowing Building. Allowing the kind of loop to extend northwards. Yeah, the I downtown mean, commercial the, there area. Was these, the Wrigley Building was the very first office building on the north side of the river. Yeah, and then the Magnificent Mile got its name after uh, World War II sure. because it replaced State Street as the Great Street or the Shopping Street right. of Chicago. Right. Well, uh, so from a residential yeah. street to a commercial street, Michigan Avenue, right? Yeah. And, and now they all very 
nicely flow together, don't they? <laughs> right, and, and uh, that was not something well, that was in the kind of imaginary in the Burnham plan at all, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but what's great about, uh, Patrick was talking about earlier, how, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of rediscovering, even in Europe, uh, different sites. You know, in Chicago, these railroad yards, or and far, former railroad yards, especially as they condense, really did prov- uh, sort of ease up some of the pressures on the downtown buildings that we may have lost yeah. uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, especially the 70s and 80s, where, you know, Illinois Center could crop out of what was, you know, originally an 1850s Illinois Central Station um, and, you know, a series of railroad yards, freight and passenger, and, of course, uh, Northwestern Station and all the railroads that came out of the South Loop, you know, Dearborn Station. We used to have seven great train stations, and we're down to half of one now right. union station sure. right and dearborn station still remains but it's a yeah. it's a, it's more of a shopping center right right yeah well we 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 need to take a break um when we come back we'll continue talking with ward and we'll bring me back into the mix to talk about uh the tender houses themselves and their kind of preservation and future um pat i understand you have to go give an architecture tour uh well a, a, river a bridge tour, tour. A, bridge tour. <laughs> a walking bridge tour for a private group awesome. and um and of course everything stacks up on the same day yeah, so right. but i appreciate you guys having me this is uh you know i lumpen radio I've, I've interviewed with you guys before it's a great thing out of bridgeport and uh you know, thanks for having me on the show. Keeper. Thanks for coming. And uh, and and uh, Wayne Anderson, you have a book. Uh, what's it? What's it called? And where can folks uh, uh, Chicago find more information? River Bridges? Um, they have it here at the Bridge House Museum uh, in downtown. It's uh, of course on Amazon, and there was a documentary as well called Chicago Drawbridges. It's uh, on a, on my website pmcbriarty.com. Terrific. Um, and Jamie, thanks for. Bringing all the equipment and making this happen. <laughs> it's a fabulous book. It yeah. really is. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back. Thanks so much. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. We are back with Buildings on Air from WLPN Chicago, uh, 105.5 FM. And uh, we're still on the Buildings on Air Bridge House special. And uh, join back with uh, me, Jay. Welcome back <laughs> to Hi, the microphone. <laughs> uh, and, and Ward is still with us, Ward Miller, Preservation Chicago. And so um, we, we, we introed it a little bit, the Tender House Project. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious... How did the idea emerge? Like, what is the origin story of That's this Tender question. House project? Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've lived in Chicago my whole life, and so um, starting off and seeing these little structures attached to bridges, it always was a curiosity. And then just recently, in, like, 2017, a good friend of mine and I were commuting, uh, Carson Poole, and we just sort of just asked a little bit further, like, what? Is the, what are those things and who lives in them and what are the current state of them because especially the one on Cortland Avenue was one that cur- uh, was curious to me and was one that I would always slowly see deteriorating and just had such beautiful architecture and uh, so from there it became this in-depth research project of like documenting each one reaching out to CDOT and kind of like cold emailing Luis Benitez and asking him for a meeting <laughs> to talk, tell me all the stories and and uh, they were gracious. And so I, uh, so since 2017, have been running um, Tender House Project as a research uh, effort. But then also it became a, you know, like 
a way to collect design proposals. So working with the School of the Art Institute in uh -huh. the AIA DO department and um, having uh, studios, graduate studios, to come up with ideas of what to do with them. Um, to then having, like, reaching also another cold email to the Friends of Chicago River to say, like, hey, how did you guys open this building up? <laughs> and then to right. say, like, hey, would you be interested if Tender House Project had an exhibition? Right. And so it slowly just started, like, just started collecting friends and collaborators yeah. and then is now sort of... <laughs> and then you were too deep in it. <laughs> so, so deep in it. And we're just... its But it's all fun, right? Sure. We got Neon made. It's official. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's awesome. It's really <laughs> awesome. Neon, yeah. Yeah, right. Ev everyone's favorite Neon guy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Shout out to Neon Mike. Thank you. That's great. Uh, and, and I, you know, I imagine with these bridge houses, I mean... They're all so architecturally distinct, um, and as we were kind of discussing, some of them are working, some of them work occasionally. S this one that we're in right now is the McCormick Bridge House Museum, so it, it is a, has its own use. It's maybe a, a foreshadowing things to come, we hope. Um, but uh, there, there must be a lot of stakeholders involved, and, and it strikes me that this is kind of always a preservation challenge when you're when you're negotiating between the owners the city agencies and and uh, the, the, the it, it must be tricky what are some of the kind of unique challenges that the bridge houses face on that kind of front on that on that front of pre the preservation so um, you know we're very concerned about um, all the bridges and uh, a lot of the bascule bridges that are throughout Chicago and uh, you know uh, CDOT in uh, the city I think forgive me for saying this but I think they want their 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 feeling is to replace these structures over time with new and improved structures and um, you know the Chicago's a city of uh, has a built environment that's so important and it's such a um, uh, a method for tourism and, and opening up uh, different ideas and so the preservation of the bridges and, and these features are really important to us and I, and I think the, those bridges on the main branch of the Chicago River are also very important to the city. I think they mm -hmm. recognize um, that these are great bridges. The last one was built in the 1980s, Columbus Drive. We have Dearborn Street which was one of the oldest bridges uh, dating back to the 1830s, it had been replaced over time, but was uh, was modernized in 1963 with a new bridge that sort of complemented Marina City at the same time. But we'd really like to see an investment in these bridges or a continued investment in these bridges. We have a handful of them that are landmarked, including this one that we're sitting on at Michigan Avenue. The Cortland Bridge uh, is also an early bridge and, and is also landmarked. But, you know, there's so many of the others that uh, extend down the river to um, you know, in the north branch, south branch, as well as the main branch, that really uh, need some maintenance, especially when you refer to the bridge houses themselves. And, you know, simple things like uh, a little painting and repairing of not only the, the bridge structure, which is actually usually in pretty good shape, um, visually at least, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, these stone houses or these stone tender houses that are oftentimes two, three, four stories tall. This one has five stories uh, from its river level all the way to the top. And, um, you know, they really do require a vast amount of money, and we should reinvest in these. These are magnificent uh, bridge houses that were sort of to emulate sort of a Parisian environment. Mm -hmm. And if you look at those, especially at LaSalle and Clark Street and Michigan Avenue, some of my favorites, 
Uh, you know, there really are on that grand Parisian Beaux-Arts scale that take your breath away. Yeah. And uh, so I think we want to see more of these uh, invested in. And it should be a regular thing that perhaps uh, Chicago corporations should adopt as an idea. But uh, I think the idea of, of, of making these bridge houses that are not working or those that are uh, sort of decorative, like, you know, this one obviously was... Uh, built some to create a sort of symmetry on the bridge that you have two bridge houses on each side of the uh, the uh, bridge opening even though two only two are really active sure. for raising bridges I mean it would be wonderful to have nonprofits hmm. um, like the Tender House Museum like the McCormick Bridge House Museum uh, and other uh, sort of entities in these bridge houses and really using those that are inactive mm-hmm. Yeah, the symmetry I find interesting just as a, as a tangent because, you know, architects are always criticized for including sort of useless things uh, in, in our work and, and needlessly spending money. And then, it never happens. Uh, never happens. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, and then, you know, here we are uh, almost 100 years later and it's like, wow. The symmetry, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Can just, I, I'm, I, gonna, I'm gonna remind my clients yes, of that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just play devil's advocate for a second, Ward? I mean, CDOT, obviously, their goal is to make sure traffic gets around the city. So, right. you know, they're, they're not necessarily um, super concerned with, with preserving old bridge houses. Is there a compromise that could be worked out where um, some of the older bridges, which are in some bad shape in this area, I mean, they're working on the Loomis Bridge right now in, in Bridgeport, right down Ooh. the street from us, and whoa, that's a project. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, can you see CDOT maybe, uh, if they have to replace the bridges, perhaps saving the bridge houses themselves? Is that a compromise you guys can see? Yes, absolutely. That, I think that's going to be the case perhaps at Chicago Avenue where you've got a bridge house that stands and the bridge was sort of cut, if you will. There's some of the armatures that are still in place, but especially next to the Montgomery Ward warehouse, it's by Richard E. Schmidt, um, you know, an early concrete building and warehouse. Uh, uh, that, that's architecturally notable and, and is a great Chicago landmark that people sometimes forget about. But I think it'd be wonderful to integrate that bridge house into the new bridge design. And then, you know, uh, at Goose Island, I remember a few years ago, that bridge came out and it had the Chicago emblem, you know, that sort of Y, which is a representation of the, the main branch breaking off into the north and south branch uh, just down here at Wolf Point, one of the early settlements of Chicago. And it would have been wonderful to be able to save these bridges and even use them as pedestrian bridges and trail bridges, perhaps on the north branch of the river, um, you know, in places like Goose Island where you've got one path that's wider and more accessible than the, the other just to get foot traffic on onto the mm-hmm. island or to have them as sort of decaying relics, you know, nearby. But um, obviously CDOT want and the city want to make sure that, you know, traffic flows and and that's a priority and and safety as well. I mean, I I don't think we can ignore that. And some of the bridges perhaps need a lot of regular maintenance and uh, perhaps a a reconstruction. But I think we should also celebrate this bascule bridge history. Just like we celebrate our architectural history, we're just embracing, we're just beginning to embrace industrial history on a larger scale, realizing how important that is. and in a place like Chicago, you know, anybody can have, any city can have a new building, right? But to celebrate these bridges and features and, and structures that really did break the norm and, and sort of re, re set our thinking are really important to remember. And, and you know, to, to celebrate them, to honor them, to restore them, to invest in them, 
uh, invest in our landmarks and invest in our infrastructure and our historical in infrastructure here in Chicago is so important. And I think that will all continue to be a tourism draw right. I was just uh, for say, the future. We should point out that there are architectural tours right outside our doors. So yeah, I mean, this correct. is obviously making money for On every side. public and private operators. I mean, I can see the Wendella boats from the window. And you have the yeah. Chicago Architecture Center. Right. Uh, shout out to them. <laughs> and Open House Chicago that's coming up uh, just you know down the street here. So it's so important to be able to embrace that legacy and remember that you know uh, this this makes us different than other cities in the world this built historic landscape and all these features and and tourists love to come and see all these uh, you know bridges in operation they love everybody loves to see a bridge go up unless you're late for an appointment right <laughs> unless you get bridged yeah and unless you get bridged <laughs> yes get, uh, and so Mija how, how's the research going are, are, are these possibilities that you've explored how deeply like what are what are some of the ideas for repurposing uh, the boathouses that have that have emerged? Well, um, the research first was a documentation of each of these and what their current status were, and then it and then I looked to the rest of the world. What are other cities uh, doing with their bridge houses? Mm -hmm. and, I mean, this this our situation of our bridges needing to lift or the operations like. Uh, must be common in other cities. So mm -hmm. I started doing this uh, case study project um, looking at uh, places in Amsterdam. Uh, Patrick mentioned Amsterdam is the, uh, the, the other city that has <laughs> right. the more, most bridges. Um, and also places in the U.S. And I found so many other cities are doing amazing uh, creative things. So in Fremont, Seattle, um, on the Fremont Bridge, they've converted one bridge house. There's two. One still days as the operator's bridge and the other one is not used for operations because controls are moved to one side mm -hmm. um, as a r artist residency so since 2005 I believe they've been hosting uh, an artist each year and they 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 vary to musicians to multimedia artists to writers and obviously like sitting in this room we can come up with so much creative yeah uh, uh, and inspiration just by looking outside um, and in Amsterdam, they've converted 28 of their bridge houses into uh, suites, hotels. Ah, so wow. it's the, the organization is Suites Hotel, and it's a partnership with a, uh, like a hospitality, develop, uh, hospitality developer and an architecture studio. Um, and they've con they've, all the controls are, the bridges still lift, but all the operations are centralized into one location. So operators don't always have to come in, but the controls still need to be there. So I, they've actually been amazing um, and have given me a lot of like help in understanding how they realized this project with Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And first off, it took off, it started with proposing six, turning them into hotels or hotel rooms. And, um, and then creatively coming up with ways of like, uh, securing the operation boxes or securing right. the doors. So I guess in this level of like homeland security concerns that we ah, have here, um, they were able to tell me, uh, guide me in ways of, of, um, of sorry, uh, dealing with that. Yeah. And um, DC has has converted their 14th Street Bridge house into like this periscope of like colors and it was by an artist in 2009 um, Myung Kim and it it essentially every night just shines colors at six points of the city Wow um, so there's a 
three different, what I call three different levels of activations. One is like sort of the external engagement, light lift. You don't require public to come in, but, and so that's like the art installation, right? <laughs> like either putting neon or putting a projection outside. Uh, it or engages the public. Ha having a little radio show. Or uh, having a little radio perhaps, show. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the second level is sort of what I called controlled access, and that's... Um, that's, uh, you know, an artist residency where you sure. limit who comes in or, you know, you bet it's not open fully to the public, but you have control. And then the other one is full on public programming, like a radio studio or like the hotel or, or a um, museum or a museum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, just have it open for nonprofits to mm -hmm. operate in these small spaces and and um, and and celebrate their space and and be vis so visibly a part of the cityscape. I mean, this would be a wonderful little office for pre for even Preservation Chicago, for instance. <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, looking at uh, you know onto the river uh, and the and the Wrigley Building and and the Tribune Tower and in every direction, you you just really feel connected to the to the sort of pulse of the city. You're on this waterway. You're you know, there's a little bit of that Venetian excitement that comes in you know being on a waterway yeah. and seeing the the water move and and the ships and the ta water taxis going by as well as the traffic you've got all this dynamic activity going on at one of those great you know intersections of the world if you will yeah so uh, one thing that tender house project is also trying to do or realizes is that these in order for these bridge houses to be maintained or to be preserved it requires community buy-in it requires a, a cultural or community steward uh, the McCormick, the Friends of Chicago River are stewards of this bridge house, right? Yeah. They maintain it. They, they they identify if there's a leak. They fix it, you know? And so if there's ways that we can start to find stewards um, for, uh, you know, the bridge house on South Ashland or mm -hmm. even on in Cortland, like... The, the idea of just, like, simple, like, painting. Right. Painting, painting uh, you know, uh, the... The, the siding or replacing a window when it's broken like that that is uh like you know preservation through active use right and care absolutely. no absolutely and you know i just want to mention that uh preservation chicago uh has been active in in some of these discussions on preserving bridge houses but we're actually making a suggestion to the the city of chicago and, and the commission on chicago landmarks department of planning and development historic preservation division to look at a uh, bridge house district or a bridge district mm. of these uh, buildings that should be preserved and should be maintained and hopefully that will send a message to all the city agencies and sister agencies that these particular structures are important and they need to be maintained and they're part of that Chicago, that greater Chicago story. And of course, a great number of them would be downtown on, on you know, the main branches of the river. But, mm -hmm. you know, there's one at 95th Street that's really important. There's one at Ashland. The one at Cortland has been preserved. But, you know, we also, the one at Cortland also has a developer, um, you know, which is Lincoln Yards. And I'm hoping that, you know, over time, these developers will also adopt these bridges and make, make sure that they're, in good in good spirits, they're are good good shape rather, and they're maintained well. And um, I think that's something that everybody should be a part of. And these are celebrated structures that are so much a part of that iconic uh, Chicago view. I'm, and when you think of Chicago, you not only think of a beautiful skyline in Lake Michigan, but you do think of this 
grand uh, access of the Chicago River. You think of the bridges all lifting uh, over time, and, and you think of that excitement that goes with entering the loop or leaving sure. the loop and entering North Michigan Avenue or River North or the Gold Coast. And it's such a dynamic part of the city, and it's a living breathing operation we realize that these all have to be maintained it's expensive to do yeah, what, what really kind of maintenance well. does need to be done on these i mean I, I think probably people who i mean this is radio it's not television people can't see mm, these buildings right what what kind of maintenance issues do these buildings have well you know just looking around you know it, it, when you look a little closer at the bridge houses they're so beautiful and they take your breath away and sometimes you're flying over them right so you're not really looking at them but when you start looking at the stonework on the outside you see things stones that are dislodged you see cracks that are occurring. These are things that, you know, if maintained or mortared or repaired would be easy fixes. I mean, everything is expensive in this day and age, especially when you're looking at big scale stuff. But, you know, I look at the LaSalle Street Bridge and the Clark Street Bridge and those beautiful mansard roofs and they're peeling paint and, you know, they're rusting. And, and you know, a little bit of maintenance there would go a long way towards their long-term preservation. And even here at the Bridge House Museum, it'd be wonderful to uh, figure out why some of the brickwork on the interior is flaking or, you know, need of repair. So all those little things, and they are little things, but they add up to, you know, a, a substantial cost at the end of the day. Plus, you have to keep the mechanics of the bridge operating and you know the bridge in good repair and uh, I think we should have a regular program for bridge maintenance especially the most historic ones and those that are landmarked uh, and also keep in mind that you know we could probably use the adopt the landmark funds uh, that are developer driven funds uh, a city grant for uh, buildings and components of the city like bridges that are landmarked so maybe that's a source or TIF monies for mm -hmm. instance to repair these bridge and uh, bridges and maintain them on a regular basis. Yeah. And Mija, how do you see sort of a uh, tender house project interacting with, with those efforts? Oh, well, I think with my current documentation of the bridge houses themselves, I'm giving them all my research. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I mean, I mean, if there's any way, like, again, like I like uh, tender house project is, is, we build ourselves on the framework of collaboration. And so, like, this is not an effort of just one organization. It's an effort of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so I am so excited to have a partnership and collaboration with Preservation Chicago that works towards towards this, towards this the effort that they're already seeking to do. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, but also finding opportunities and ways for um, our community organizations, cultural organizations can also find yeah. uh, find their place inside uh, on the on the Chicago River. Yeah, uh, and we're going to talk with uh, our friends from Friends of the Chicago River in in just a, in just a moment. Um, but I, I'm curious, Mijay, uh, for our architectural audience, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think one of the things that we kind of talk about often on Buildings on Air is kind of how architects a lot of times engage in these speculative projects and like it's all fine and well and like you know it helps us open up an imaginary about what's possible but how much is it really doing but it strikes me that this is like not one of those kinds of cases where we're just kind of like ah like we're gonna do the good thing we're gonna imagine it and like let's hope it happens like maybe it'll have some echo effect and I don't know uh, you're, this is actually how I mean it's it's happening and I think our architectural audience will be kind of curious to know 
how you transition a kind of idea research project to uh, the, to reality, right? It's it's not like this is a client that's kind of hiring you, right? I mean, the, the idea is there. Clearly, there's a, a, a team of people who kind of shares the interest, but it, it, how? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this effort makes no money, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I've been running it for almost three years now, mm. and it's... Um, it's all on passion, right? Like it's a, it's something that is a need that uh, yeah. needs to be realized. So like there's so much development that's going to happen on the Chicago River. Yeah. And so the need is that we need to secure sites for community and civic use, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, so that drives me, right? Yeah. And so I th- like it first started off. No, it never really started off as a speculative thing. It started straight on as research, who owns it, uh, what are they doing about it, and is there ways that they can be used by community Mm -hmm. organizations. Then I opened it up to these design proposals. What could? Mm -hmm. And I would meet with CDOT, and I would meet with DCASE, and I would meet with Metropolitan Planning Council and say, these are the possibilities. And they're like, yeah, Mijay, we can see the possibilities, but what's your proposal? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, you really want a strategy, and so I was like, okay. So then that got me real, real, yeah. uh, and that's talking to all of my friends in like in development, in urban planning, in the architecture world of how 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 do they do this? How how does one navigate through the city system? Because that's a really hard thing for one person, right? Absolutely. Um, especially, let's just say, a woman of color, mm-hmm. and to do it to do it sort of without credit, right? Without yeah. money, and so like just you know, kind of really doing the cold emails and sticking your foot in the city's door. And however, the reception has been really good. And so I've learned a lot in this process and have developed these strategies. One other thing that I've, that, that makes this project more real is actually finding who out, who are those stewards that I am, that, that we need to actually activate these spaces. Right. Um, so it's talking to community organizations that are interested, that, that want to secure sites on the river mm-hmm. for, for, their, for their voices. And so one of the partnerships is with Public Media Institute, and yeah. we have an effort called Communities Amplified. And that's, I'm just going to plug this in right now. Yeah. I mean, it's to try to secure five bridge houses um, along the Chicago River. So that's uh, just, just also to note that there's 70 bridge houses in Chicago. Um, and they span 13 miles of the Chicago River and have direct impact, direct access to 15 neighborhoods. So how can five of these bridge houses uh, um be sort of these platforms for community voices, uh, how can they become civic magnets, right? Yeah. And so um, Communities Amplified is trying to work with the city to realize this, actually, this program that's being demonstrated as, as a radio studio. Yeah. Um, how, 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 can, uh, how can that happen? And so we are working on that development strategy in multiple different ways, either through grants um, and uh, also just to talking with folks in the city. Yeah. Well, it's super inspiring stuff. And, you know, I think, um, <laughs> I mean, so it's force of will, uh, having a vision, trying to get yourself to be, to use a Chicagoism, somebody, someone sent from somewhere, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and, and finding, finding partners. It's, it's, in, it's incredible work. Uh, we're honored to be a part of it um, um, as kind of 
Buildings on Air and uh, the Co-Prosperity Sphere and Lumpen Radio. Um, and so, Mijay, thank you so much. Ward, thank you so much. Is there any last-minute things you want to say before we, we start chatting with our friends from uh, Friends of the Chicago River? You know what? Let's, uh, let's encourage the city uh, to landmark these buildings and, uh, and work on their restoration with CDOT and the other sister organizations. And let's encourage foundations to work with Mijay and uh, repurpose some of these great buildings that are... Uh, in plain sight that we sometimes forget about and uh, and need a purpose and and could actually help grow nonprofits that do so much wonderful work in our city. Absolutely. Mijay? Tender House Project is looking for more collaborators. We're always looking for more collaborators and so please reach out if you have any interests or ideas. Um, we have an open call for proposals and ideas um, and I'm always happy to meet and to present this project to anyone. So actually um, Where can people get in touch with you? Yes, thank you. You can you can go to our website tenderhouseproject.com um, or reach me at the McCormick Bridge House Museum because we have an exhibition that's ongoing up until November third, uh, where we are demonstrating more activations of this bridge house, um, and uh, you can reach me here. Great. And if you're interested, Preservation Chicago has a free newsletter and join our organization. It's www.preservationchicago.org and become a member or just become a supporter. Uh, just having ideas is really important. Great. Well, thanks, y'all. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Friends of the Chicago River. It's amazing we got through this entire segment without you once mentioning HVAC. That's true. <laughs> it's a buildings it's on a air buildings first. Air first. Yeah. All right. We'll be back right after these messages. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. All right, we are back with Buildings on Air, and uh, we've talked River Past. We've talked uh, Tender House Present, <laughs> a little bit future. Um, but now I'm really excited to think about our river system here in Chicago more generally. And I'm joined uh, by Chloe Gurren-Sands of the Metropolitan Planning Council and also uh, Joanne Dill and John Quayle of Friends of the Chicago River. How's it going, y'all? Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, uh, we really appreciate you all coming. And um, so uh, when we think about the future of the Chicago River, I mean, we, we talked earlier in the show about how once upon a time this was a kind of working waterfront which meant that you know there was there's pollution there was you know kind of uh, industry and now we're at this kind of moment in the city where we're revisiting our rivers in a in a different sort of way so I, i'm i'm curious if i can if i can sort of ask about that um uh and and maybe a good segue into that is talking about who kind of friends of the chicago river are and, and maybe how you express that friendship and how you think about uh, this kind of changing relationship we have to the river in the city. Well, I'll start. Um, Friends of the Chicago River has been around for 40 years, and our relationship to the river has been to protect and improve the river system for people, plants, and animals. That's our mission statement. And it's a really exciting time for the river, I think, especially. It's a, it's a promising time, wouldn't you say, John? Yeah, and we do that with lots of different things, everything from 
large-scale restoration projects to help turtle, turtles build nests to, uh, you know, sitting in court hearings and advocating for cleaner water so that we could see swimming in the river one day and things like that. Yeah. And Chloe, how does, how does the Metropolitan Planning Council figure into this? Sure. Metropolitan Planning Council um, is a nonprofit, non-governmental civic organization, um, a peer organization of Friends of the Chicago River. So we actually partnered together along with the city on creating the Our Great Rivers vision, which is a vision for all three of Chicago's rivers um, and how Chicagoans want to really see a balance between economic productivity, um, ecological livability, and recreation along the riverfronts. Yeah. So what's, what's happening right now? Like what, what initiatives are on the, on the table? You just mentioned one, but what, what is kind of the current state of, of activism and advocacy around the rivers for, for listeners who are maybe unaware? There's so much going on. I mean, I would say from my perspective, running the education outreach programs for friends, we have such a huge volunteer membership base. One of our biggest initiatives is um, ambitiously trying to make the Chicago River system litter free. Mm. And that's not necessarily removing every single piece of trash out of the river, but starting from the basics and just awareness and working with people. Uh, doing cleanups along the riverbanks and even in the river system. We've done this really fun program this summer called Canoes and Cleanups where we mm. take people out, um, especially at partner launch sites such as REI right on Goose Island. That's a new store mm. um, along the river system. And so people come out, they enjoy the, the, they have the recreational aspect of it, which has always been one of our key sort of um, priorities. Mm. And then at the same time, cleaning it up and sort of discovering what what are we finding where and what can we do right. about it i think another aspect that's, that's that's really current right now is in the last you know decade we've put a lot of access points into the river the water is so much cleaner but we still haven't connected all of our neighborhoods to the river so right. making sure that all the neighborhoods throughout the city have equitable access to clean water and recreational access to the river so that it's amenity for everybody mm -hmm. you know throughout the city and that's something that we're going to be definitely focusing on you know in the near term yeah well and, and it's it sort of strikes me the the total change in scales when you're addressing this problem because on, on one hand it's this kind of planning issue of access points that, that's kind of region wide I mean the, the river system as we, it goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico right and so like you know th there's this kind of huge scale uh, that has to be considered just as much as kind of opening up the river walk here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to give people a kind of different experience on the, or, or even the kind of scale of, you know, picking up trash piece by piece out of the thing. And so um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm curious how all your organizations sort of nego negotiate that. Like, it, it just strikes me as a kind of really difficult advocacy task to work between all, all of those skills. Or maybe it's really easy. Maybe you organize a <laughs> trash pickup and then you go to the, you know, the planning office and be like we want this kind of plan to be realized I don't know it's um, it definitely is a lot so across all three of Chicago's rivers there's hundred and fifty plus miles of riverfront mm. um, so if you count both sides of the river um, we have you know areas still that are industrial that are working areas we yeah. have um, areas that are in the forest preserves that are supernatural um, and feel like you know you're walking through this forest away from the city and then areas that are really recreational and commercial like downtown um, so balancing all of those um, you're right is mm. a huge feat um, so building on John's point to this different 
um, access that exists along the rivers. There are 15 community-led projects that are being run right now by communities all across the city, mm -hmm. um, really thinking about what are the things that their neighborhoods need. So mm -hmm. some folks are focusing on um, environmental justice and even what it means to have access to the river next to um, you know, a coal plant or a warehouse. Um, some folks are doing placemaking and arts and mm -hmm. putting murals up and, you know, finding ways to bring people to riverfront spaces. Um, and then I think there's also this growing issue of management and um, kind of coordination across all of the river bodies. And so I don't know if John and Joanne, you want to talk more about the Governance and Ecology Task Force? Yeah, well, even I'll, I'll even go a little bit more broad, and that was a perfect segue to what I was going to say. And it's, you know, one of the ways that Friends gets a lot done, we have a very small staff, about a dozen people. You know, MPC does not have thousands of employees either. So we do almost all of our projects in partnership and collaboration with other organizations, and even public agencies that you might think we we are critical of, but we find that we can get a lot more done in a non-adversarial position. Not to say that, you know, we might not call lawyers into a situation at some point, <laughs> but we prefer to really, you know, work collaboratively and find really good solutions, and we've had a lot of success doing that, you know, with groups like MPC and The Shed and the MWRD and the city and, and really trying to move the ball down the field that way. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, you mentioned there's 150 miles of riverfront, um, if you count both sides. I know producer Jamie is one of, one of those people. He only counts the one side. He only counts 75 <laughs> yeah. miles. That's true. Only, only the south side counts. I, actually, I was wondering if you guys could detail some of the more successful uses. Because, I mean, obviously, you guys have been around for 40 years, is it? And, mm -hmm. and you, you know, you've mentioned a number of projects. You've also been on, on, on my other show with John Daly. But I'm wondering if there are standout projects. I mean, we're sitting next to the Riverwalk, which seems to be a very commercially successful and viable uh, use of the river. And we've talked with Ward earlier in the program about the architecture tours and stuff. Are there lesser known projects that you guys can point to as examples of how the river can be successfully used and transformed for communities? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, you know, if I'm, I'll nerd out on that question for a second, even on the Riverwalk here, uh, friends did a project called the Fish Hotel that preceded the construction of the Riverwalk that looked at how you could get fish into real urban river environments and provide, the Fish Hotel really provided everything that... But let's just be clear, this is not the jam band you're talking about, because we <laughs> no, don't want no, fish no. to come to Chicago. <laughs> no, okay, not the jam you. band, but the Fish Hotel did, it did provide space for everything that people do in hotels for fish, so to meet mm -hmm. other fish and hang out, to eat, <laughs> and provide that habitat, and that's been built in to the Riverwalk now on the jetty, so there's these little things that are sort of under the water. There's Spelunkers. also... Yeah, the fish, yeah, mm -hmm. the lunkers. Um, you know, we've done a, a, a lot of projects. I mentioned turtle nesting habitat before. We have a lot of turtles in Chicago. We don't have a lot of places for them to nest, and that's something we, working with scientists, have discovered. And there's lots of you know places where we can build in habitat, and we found that. If we fix habitat in the winter, turtles come back in the spring and start to lay eggs. Mm. Uh, there's a bunch of people today, or actually tomorrow and Friday, planting on the North Shore Channel in conjunction with the shed, and they're planting native plants that provide habitat for things like otters and beavers and pike mm -hmm. and things that people wouldn't, aren't think, don't think are in the river. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of examples of natural projects. And then at the same time, sort of the projects that Chloe highlighted, there are these projects where we're connecting people to the river too, whether it's mm -hmm. through bike trails or the Wild Mile or work, work you know, at Lathrop Homes. Mm -hmm. um, 
to build the, the human connections with those benefits sort of below the water for the animals. Yeah. Yeah, Lathrop, I think, is a great example. I was going to mention that, too. Um, so Chicago has two public housing um, uh, properties that are actually on the riverfronts, Lathrop Homes on the north branch of the Chicago River, and then um, Altgeld Gardens on the Calumet, the Little Calumet River. And both of those projects have been really working to reconnect um, those neighborhoods and those communities to the rivers and bring, um, you know, activities that really fit in culturally with the folks that live there, um, reconnecting to those spaces. And then um, I think as far as unknown, very beautiful artwork that's happening um, that really, again, represents the culture um, across our city. Um, again, on the Little Calumet River, there's a group called um, the Major Taylor uh, Cycling Club and Community Neighborhood Improvement Project um, that have worked to put in a 400-foot mural across a bridge going across the river that's honoring uh, Marshall Taylor, who was one of the first African-American champion cyclists in the world in the early 1900s. And then way up on the north branch of the Chicago River, again, um, and the Des Plaines River, the American Indian Center and the Chicago Public Arts Group are working with um, an artist, Santiago X, to put in um, the first effigy mounds, um, Native American effigy mounds, um, since the founding of this country that have been put in. So pretty amazing work. Yeah, very exciting. I got to say, it's really cool to hear about all these projects. <clears throat> and when friends had established the Bridge House Museum, and I don't know if you guys had gone into this earlier, but, mm. you know, we, we had planned on not only making it sort of this outpost for friends, but it's a, as a cultural um, piece for friends because it's, you know, not only covering ecology, but also the opportunity to raise awareness right on the main stem. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a nice way to break through what, 13 or 14 years ago and to see other projects along different parts of the river is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm I'm curious when we talk about planning and projects. I mean, I'm these all these initiatives are incredible, and and sort of it's it's so amazing to see community-led uh, arts projects about the river, drawing attention to the river, ecological projects, and also I mean the the idea of connecting sort of robust public housing through to this river infrastructure in a in a really positive and enriching way is is so cool. Um, of course, famously, there's also now a couple of very large private developments that are coming to the riverfront, um, or at least, uh, you know, they've been slated to their own discussion in the news all of the time. Um, I'm thinking specifically of um, the Finkel Steel site is one that's nearby. Um, what's it called? These The 76, is that right? The 78, right? All the, I, the developers, they love their number names. They sound so <laughs> hip. Uh, and I, you know, I can never remember the numbers. The, the 78. Um, kind of in South Loop. And so I'm, I'm curious what some of the maybe ecological challenges are with those projects and, and how, your, how your organizations are relating to, to these issues. Yeah, so we, at Friends of the River, we work really closely with developers in the development community. We have a planning committee that we invite anybody that's developing any property along the river to come speak to those people. And they have a lot of expertise in how to build natural riverbanks that have habitat and native plants and space for people and fish and really to push innovative solutions to uh, recreational access. The 78 in particular um, has a great spot for a beach. So hopefully <laughs> yeah. we'll see a beach there. I don't know, but that's something we're advocating <laughs> for. So, um, so in both of those cases, we've worked with the developers to try to push the envelope as far as access and habitat. Um, so like Lincoln Yards, friends attended all the hearings at City Hall about Lincoln Yards, and we pay close attention to that process. 
thankfully, because of our mission, we're not, we don't have to be concerned about traffic or <laughs> you're, you're, noise. You're not the people yelling about parking. No, nope, no, nope, okay. nope. We had a lot of, pe- I had a lot of people come up to me after meetings and they said, you know, I saw you were here to talk yeah. about Lincoln Yards and I wasn't sure what to think, but Maybe, I'm glad you yeah. limited yeah. your comments to the river. Maybe so boat parking. I don't know. <laughs> we are, no, we, I mean, I'm very concerned about where you're going to park your canoe and kayak because I know that people that live there, there are a lot of places to put canoes and kayaks yeah. in. So how do you have access to those types of things? Yeah. People that get out of their boat and get a cup of coffee or hang out in a park and in, in really. So that is, yeah. Yeah. Boat parking is an issue for yeah, us. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the bike parking versus cars like parking, sort of. It's it, the, the, the less terrestrial variant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, to, to give you an idea sort of, the, of where the rivers come, I've, I've been a friend's for a long time. Mm-hmm. And now when we talk to, especially private developers that are putting in uh, office or residential, the term kayak divvy comes up all the time. <laughs> Interesting. So that is something that developers look at, the river as an access point and sort of, I don't like to call it mass transit because it's kind of, it's uh, slow transit, you know. It's, <laughs> sure. You know, but yeah. But but you find that they're sort of receptive sometimes. Uh, Most of the time, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. the economics, you know, the, the economic data shows that when you the riverfront development pays off, and mm. that is from a developer's perspective, that's a big deal. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, I wondered about water taxis. You know, if that mm-hmm. was part of your development program as well. And I do want to get back to the ecological thing as yeah. well because you know we are talking about kayaks, and you said earlier, you know. You want to clean the river up, get the litter out of it, and make it a uh, possible swim. How, how realistic is that? I mean, I say this as someone that lives in Bridgeport next to Bubbly Creek, yeah. which mm-hmm. I'm convinced will never be cleaned up. So how, really, just be honest, how, how realistic is that you can go from a river where people used to tell you to go to the hospital if you had contact with it yep. sure. to being able to swim in it? Yeah, so it's, it's really, it's, we're much closer than you would think. On days when it hasn't rained, the water is clean enough for swimming, from a chemical perspective much of the time. That's why we're so concerned about litter is because you wouldn't want to jump in something if there's a hot Cheetos bag and a Gatorade bottle floating by. So there is the aesthetic of it. Now, Bubbly Creek's a great example. There's a big project that's uh, slowly taking shape in Bubbly Creek to turn it into a wetland. So I would say in 10 years from now, I would like to, we'll go have coffee on Bubbly Creek and you'll say, I can't believe that there's herons and things in Bubbly Creek and then we can do down, you know, down the creek. Will the herons have two heads? They will not have two heads. I don't believe you. I think there's the water quality piece of it, which John mentioned, and then there's also infrastructure. So for a river that in a lot of areas still is a working river, there are concerns about making sure that if people are swimming, we're setting off um, specific areas, thinking about barge traffic, thinking about um, all of the activity that happens on the river as well. Yeah, and it's activity-based. It's not chemical-based. So a lot of the industry that we have now is the aggregate industry moving aggregate back and forth. Now, I'm not, you know, there are uh, pollution impacts from that, but it's not, we don't have polluters dumping noxious chemicals into the river like we did many many years ago so the the concerns are not you know, are not that yeah interesting mm-hmm. we have a, you know to jump in the river we have an event i should mention that we just oh, did yeah. two yeah. weeks ago <laughs> called the big jump in pingtown park at pingtown park in chinatown when this is the third year we've had it and we had 30 people jump in the river this year 25 last year 20 the year before a lot of elected officials and sort of industry people and people that know what's in the water and they're willing to go in head first so 
Yeah. yeah. And stay in there for a bit. And stay in there for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, um, so we have these big development projects. We have people kind of turning to the river. Um, what other kind of planning, regional planning initiatives are, are there that are underway to kind of think about how, how we relate to the river as, as Chicagoans? Well, Friends of the Chicago River, we conducted this um, economic study uh, called the Blue-Green Corridor and how when you make an investment that factors in, you know, ecology and um, public health and recreation, for every dollar you invest, you get a dollar seven back. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's just a way, a method of green infrastructure and how to develop so that everything is connected. You're not just do replicating river walks all the way along the river stretch, yeah. you know. Um, and so that is sort of a model, a piece of it as we work with development, uh, cities, and planners. Mm. Um, and are there any parts that are going to require de-development, perhaps? Uh, interesting. There are, uh, I don't know about de-development, but there are things like, there's, we have a glut of golf courses mm. in this area. So golf courses got built out a lot in the 90s, and we don't have as many golfers anymore. Golf courses are great opportunities for habitat restoration. Mm. So how do we, if there are these large tracts of land, which is pretty rare in this area, how do we deal with those to make them really a benefit? And when we talk about regional stuff a lot, we're talking about stormwater. So how stormwater yeah. moves through the environment oh, and the impacts of stormwater. So we work a lot on regional stormwater. MPC works a ton on regional stormwater. So not only making sure that stormwater isn't uh, you know, damaging to the built environment and the native environment, but making it a, a benefit to the environment and right. utilizing it. And that's a lot of what we're trying to turn what, you know, some people think are problems into, into real benefits. Yeah. yeah, sure. I wouldn't have thought about stormwater as something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fascinating considering we are seeing climate change uh, dramatically yeah. impact Chicago. Just to follow on that, how, how, how much has the change in climate affected how you guys think about development on the river and in some of these spaces? It's, it's, a, it's a huge change, and it's, you know, in the, the way that, that public agencies and government work, a lot of our planning is done with rainfall data that, if we're lucky, is from the late 80s. Hmm. So we see uh, climate events that are more intense events, so we're dealing with stormwater for infrastructure that was not really designed to deal with this. So we're looking at solutions with plants and native landscapes that can, as nature intends, soak up that water like a sponge and, and try to deal with it. So we're, the, what's the, if the built environment's not designed to handle what's coming down the road, we're hoping that we can, through native restoration and you know, de-development, de sure. start to build this, these other spaces that can absorb that water. And at the same time, they're absorbing it, provide habitat, and make it cleaner as it goes to lakes yeah. and rivers. A win-win-win. Yeah. <laughs> One of the ways that we ask individuals to take action is um, through our Overflow Action Days program. And basically, it's, it's basically like a water conservation. When it's about to rain, a, before or during or after a rain event, to sort of limit the volume of water that goes into the system, we ask people to just save water during those um, periods because, you know, the system is obviously trying to, to handle um, the stormwater and the sewage at the same time. Mm. So it's called Overflow Action Days. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And then along the riverfronts, again, going back to those industrial uses, um, it's not de-development, but just thinking about what are the industrial uses of the future? What are these modern, um, you know, industries that are coming in that are more green, um, that can interact with the river in a more sustainable way? Um, and so thinking about that as just kind of, you know, 
part of the plan for how Chicago becomes ready for our climate future as well. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it really strikes me in, in thinking about these this kind of question of scale and, and the activism and advocacy that you all do about how much it is kind of a, a patchwork quilt of different activities that kind of scale up. And, and so thinking about the next scale up, um, which is certainly interacts with climate change, the, the Great Lakes. Uh, and I mean, so are, there, are you working in coalition with groups uh, that are around the Great Lakes region? Um, because I, I, I know that as we start to think about the Green New Deal and programs like this, I've, I've heard people talking about perhaps a Great Lakes authority, kind of in the vein of a Tennessee River Valley authority, and presumably that would branch down into the rivers as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, how you sort of make those connections and how your advocacy scale, scales up as our, as our kind of political horizons get bigger and bigger for what kind of reclamations and, and, and uh, sustainable initiatives uh, are, are possible, it, it seems that like our imaginary for, can get bigger and bigger uh, to, to match. I know that's a really big question that I didn't <laughs> prepare you all for, but uh, frequent listeners to Buildings on Air will know that that's a, that's a key for done special right there. Yeah. To ask the, yeah, that and HVAC. Yeah, that and HVAC <laughs> is to, to ask the really big unfair question and just see what happens. So don't I mean, feel that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a fair question. I think so we do have um, organizations that are part of our rivers work in coalitions like the Alliance for the Great Lakes that mm -hmm. also um, take, uh, you know, a Great Lakes approach and work across many of the cities across the Great Lakes region. Um, so I'm sure they are doing a lot of thinking in that direction as well. Yeah. But our rivers, you know, as you mentioned, like they move everywhere outside of the boundaries of our city. And so, um, you know, we do have some networks um, with other uh, you know, riverfront cities and thinking about how they've done their work and how they've approached this. Um, but yeah, and we work um, a lot on the Asian carp issue, so oh, that's sure. a, a Great Lakes what, issue. What, would you? I'm sure maybe listeners are familiar, but would you? So the Asian carp is a. So one of the issues we have uh, is a are called aquatic invasive species. So we've got aquatic invasive species that are coming. Uh, from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River and that are coming from the Mississippi River to the Great Lakes. Mm. And the Chicago River is the conduit for both of those directions. So we spent a lot of time talking about how to prevent that the transfer of those species. The Asian carp is one that's moving from the Mississippi River to the Great Lakes. In our industry, we call them charismatic megafauna. And so the Asian <laughs> carp is like... That sounds oddly yeah. charming, I have to say. The saddest example is the polar bear on the iceberg, right? I like see, everybody yeah. knows that example, or bison, right? Uh -huh. So we have this fish that is can be 300 pounds and can jump out of the water. And they, if, you, you, if you Google or you do YouTube and look up Asian carp, you're going to see some crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that is an, a fish that's, that's driven a lot of discussion, which is great because it's pushed that discussion... Uh, down the road the yeah. the 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 bigger issue f is really things coming from the Great Lakes, so nine out of ten of aquatic invasive species are going from the Great Lakes. they come into the St Lawrence Seaway yeah. mm. so so dealing with that, we also deal a lot in Chicago. Chicago has a complicated relationship with Lake Michigan water, mm. so we're well, the tell us more <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we're the only place that's pulling Lake Michigan water out and sending it away, so we work a lot on that uh, with Alliance and working on what's called the diversion, which dictates how much water comes out of the lake. And then just as a sort of um, 
to make sure that Friends knows what's going on. We work closely with people in the Milwaukee River and the Detroit River and some of the other rivers around the Great Lakes Basin just so that we're sharing ideas and mm-hmm. sharing fish hotel ideas or sturgeon, <laughs> bringing sturgeon yeah. back, things like that. Yeah, yeah. tacking on, sorry, Jamie, tacking on to the, um, the water issue and the drinking water issue, Metropolitan Planning Council also does a lot in terms of drinking water and has a drinking water action plan um, that really is looking at, you know, we have a lot of water here, so people don't often think that, you know, maybe some of our areas might have shortages if they're pulling not from the lake, um, but some of our municipalities in the region um, are pulling from groundwater and are facing those questions, so... Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted, uh, maybe people don't necessarily know this, but one of the historic engineering things in Chicago was to reverse the flow of the river. So we are actually sending our waste down to St. Louis, which is a, you know, it's St. Louis's problem now. But <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because the, the Great Lakes, and specifically Lake Michigan, I mean, uh, we have 700 breweries here in the city of Chicago, and people like Lagunitas have moved here because of the, the water supply. They've moved from California to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are major industries that rely on that drinking water, and other industries have come into places, and I'm thinking specifically of Nestle uh, taking groundwater, specifically in Florida. Um, how concerned are you guys about the fact that we are set up in a system where we are draining the lake at an unusual level? very concerned like in nestle is a good example and nestle in michigan is taking a lot of spring water from that state that would be that's right in the heart of the great lakes watershed so it is that is why we promote things like overflow action days to really make people start to think about water conservation because in chicago that water is going it's a one-time use water so it goes out your out of your faucet down your sink to st louis or joliet or the gulf of mexico Whereas in other cities around the Great Lakes, the Milwaukee River, the city of Milwaukee drinks their water, goes through a treatment plant, goes back out into Lake Michigan and comes back in. So there is a recycling aspect to that. Now, there are other, other places in Lake Superior that we have bigger drains than, than we do here. Um, but it is water management in the Great Lakes is a, is a big deal. A lot of that water comes through the river, so it makes it a big deal for us. It's a big deal for drinking water for all of mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not an expert on that topic, but my colleague Danielle Gallet um, is, so everyone can look up her work on our website <laughs> on that topic. She's also a stormwater <laughs> expert too. So you yes. Can right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know uh, Studio Gang, the architecture office in town, they actually came up with a proposal a few years ago to re-reverse the river, uh, which I found to be in- interesting. Uh, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Um, that's been a lot of the discussion in the, the CARP discussions, and yeah. I, I fully endorse that really big picture thinking for what we can do with the river. Yeah. Re-reversing the river logistically Ooh. Is, can be really difficult, can be a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how likely that is, but it's not impossible. Mm. Interesting. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious what, what, what initiatives you have on the docket right now that people might be interested in engaging with uh, as, as, the, as the Metropolitan Planning Council, as friends. Um, tell us what's, what's on the immediate horizon. Uh, where can folks plug in if they care about these ecological and big picture issues that directly impact our, our sort of welfare as, as Chicagoans and as we've just kind of discussed, I mean, we're, we're in a part of a connected ecosystem that is at the scale of, of a region and a country. So even if you're listening outside of Chicago, um, in, in some ways, your, your kind of health and welfare and livelihood might as, depend on <laughs> some mm-hmm. of these initiatives also. 
Sure. Um, so MPC, of course, today we've been talking about the Our Great Rivers initiative. Um, we also have our stormwater work, our uh, drinking water action agenda. Part of that includes um, some work around lead in drinking water as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have also a whole set of other issues that we work on as well. Housing, transportation, land use. Um, so there's a lot. Yeah. I, and, yeah. And people can find out more on the website. Is, is there like a venue yep. for pub public involvement and engagement in that? or? Um, we have, so our website's metroplanning.org. Okay. Um, we do a lot of events. So our urban think and drinks, which are events that we have in our space um, after after work, um, just other, you know, events that we do out in the community. Um, but our Twitter at Metro Planners and our website, um, we tend to keep those pretty updated and through our newsletter, The Regionalist. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, the easiest way to get information is at chicagoriver.org, and we really engage a lot of volunteers, so we're entering the fall season. We have this program called Centennial Volunteers, where you can go out into um, eight different sites in the forest preserves and do some restoration work with us. Um, we've got the canoes and cleanups, that, like I mentioned, or even just, again, the overflow action days. That's a, a media campaign, basically, where you'll receive alerts via email or on social media on when to conserve water, and um, what else? Uh, we have uh, it's a, li a little bit of lead time here, but in March we have an event, early March, called the Chicago River Summit that we hold every year that looks at an issue. And this year the issue is regional green infrastructure. Uh -huh. So that will be held somewhere within you know, a quarter mile of the loop where we are right now <laughs> sure. um, once we find a space. And uh, we'll bring speakers in. We'll have some local speakers. We'll have some people from around the country talking about innovative solutions to, to exactly what you were asking about with climate change and stormwater. Yeah. Very good. Uh, yes, I, I know some architects who might be interested in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, friend of the show, Skylar Moran, runs a studio at IIT about some of these. We've got, we've, we've got the Buildings on Air Rolodex is filled with people who we'll, we'll send your way. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank you, producer Jamie. Uh, you're my favorite uh, charismatic megafauna. <laughs> it's only because I carry gear up five stairs. <laughs> yes. And then we, we steal your microphone so you can't say anything. We've, you know, we put you through the ringer today. Uh, but, wow, what, what, what a kind of special moment to be able to record in the Bridge House. Hopefully it's the first activation of, of many. And hopefully uh, uh, we will see even more of this type of thing in these types of spaces as part of this kind of amazing uh, aquatic uh, uh, fabric work of Chicago. Yeah. All right. That's been your Buildings on Air special. Thanks, y'all. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.